0: Now, this is Box to Box with Michael Edgley and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! The Chemist Warehouse.
1: Great savings every day.
2: And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. Regular host Rob Gilbert will be back next week, but for now you're with Willem van Denderen and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. As always, our former ITN journo-turned-pundit Derek Dyson will join us throughout the show. And this week's is a show that will reflect on the life and legacy of one of the game's greatest, Edson Arantes Nascimento, loved globally as Pele, who passed aged 82 in Sao Paulo last week. The only man to win three World Cups, Pele was the embodiment of Brazil's Jogo Benito mantra, playing and living with a smile on his face. Tributes have flown globally all week, so we're going to reflect on a couple of local angles, starting with Australian football royalty Ray Richards. Two years before forming part of our legendary 1974 side, Richards had the unenviable task of marking Pelé as Santos played the Socceroos in Sydney, but passed with flying colours. We'll also touch base with Simon Hill, one of many around the world, to treasure a personal meeting with Pelé, and separately dig into Melbourne Victory's significant woes. And we're going to round off with Pelé's World Cup corner. Edge, welcome to the program. This has been coming. Pelé's been in and out of the Albert Einstein Hospital with uh, colon cancer and a few other health concerns over the last little while. But through the Instagram posts that he and his family have been putting out, it seemed that he retained his sunny disposition uh, right to the end.
0: It seems that way, doesn't it? And um, it, it's momentous that uh, Pelé passes. Obviously, not a greater a, as a shock as what we felt when Maradona passed. And obviously, um our generations didn't have the advantage of all the digital content. Uh, there's some of it exists about Palais, but not as much about his um, the people that he's obviously obviously referred to. But he was a mythical brand and character in his own right, a, a very statesman like figure in the game. And and I'm reminded about the words he said uh, only recently, actually, when um, a, a journalist um, asked him about. Uh, how he would be compared to De Stefano, Maradona, and Messi. And I'll let uh, the great man's palais words um, speak for themselves. They're beautiful. He said, You know, I have an Argentinian friend who a long time ago asked, came to me and said that De Stefano was better than me. 20 years past, he came back and said, There's this guy called Maradona and he's better than you. And now they're talking about this guy called Messi who's better than me. And I said to him, Agree among yourselves first, and whichever one it is, just send him to me, would you? <laughs> so I thought Pelé's uh, words speak loud enough. He uh, He's obviously always compared... The greatest player in the world, in many's view, is always compared to uh, the contemporaries that are leading the charge at the moment. But uh, rest in peace, great man, the king, Pelé. Uh, we'll sadly uh, miss his smiling face. What a beautiful smile he had, and um, we're going to talk a lot about him throughout the... The course of the show and I'm particularly drawn to his uh, move to America at the age of 34, the first time out of Brazil, which was uh, hugely significant at New York
2: Cosmos and put American soccer on the map. As mentioned, Rob is going to be back next week and like Simon Hill, who's coming up later on, Rob... Adores his photo and memories of, of meeting Pello back in 2014. Uh, Rob had a key hand in the promotion of what was Pele's last visit out here. And just some words that he sent through this afternoon. I got the chance to meet the great man who, in what was a series of long days, consistently gave every person a special moment. Eye contact, a handshake, and a memory they'll never forget. So, Derek, it really does seem, and it's come through strongly, that uh, his legacy was twofold. Obviously, the Jogo Benito, the... Magnificent smile as he leapt into uh, Jarzinho's hands, scoring that first goal in the nineteen seventy World Cup. All the odd uh, World Cup final, all the on-field stuff, but then also, as Michael mentioned, a statesman of the game uh, and a yeah, a magnificent disposition throughout the rest of his life and how he handled himself.
1: We've lost some fabulous players, gents, haven't we? In in, in recent years, and um, whether it be uh, Johan Cruyff a few years ago, gone too soon, and then. Uh, Maradona as well. Um, you you don't feel like there are many of these titans of the game left. Uh, certainly, the people that that that, as I was growing up, that I was very aware of as the of, of the icons of the game. And yes, um, Pele was not necessarily the scorer of great goals, but uh, he although he did score some very good goals, and um, but he was uh, the scorer of a great number of goals, and of course the the numbers uh, change depending on which article you're reading, but it is somewhere between 1,200 and 1,300 goals. And all the players that have come after him, I think, have all drawn on the spirit of Pelé, whether it be Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Romario, Neymar Jr. Now, but have have they come close to the big man? Maybe Ronaldo at times, but you know, with three World Cups in three different decades, I, I think Pelé is streets ahead of all those other names that I mentioned. But yes, as you said, in a week where um another Ronaldo, Cristiano, decided to sell his soul to Saudi Arabia for a not inconsiderable amount of money. And, and Pelé himself was a, was a great fan of the uh, the endorsement deal, <laughs> let's say. Um, but but certainly his efforts off the pitch, whether they be social or whether they just be being generous with his time with any fan that, that wanted to show interest in him, certainly comes through in all the anecdotes that we've heard in the last couple of days.
0: Yeah, absolutely amazing, uh, Derek. Um, great memories there. Um, nicknamed uh, in Brazil, Ori, which is the king, um, often not known uh, for that uh, nickname around the world, but um, we obviously understand the significance of it. And um, the Brazilians had three days of uh, national mourning. Journalists travelled from all around the world to Sao Paulo and Santos and his um, hometown in the southeast of Brazil. Um, I imagine Brazilian television ran wall-to-wall coverage of his death and um, it'll be a big hole to feel uh, in Brazilian uh culture and um, it'll, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very significant day. I guess I'm drawn to, you know, having never seen him play like I did see Maradona play, I'm drawn to just the, the mythical stature of Pelé. And at a time when the world was not as connected as we are now, um, um, I guess the other mythical characters of the time, Muhammad Ali, you know, Pelé, he was, uh, it just must have been so amazing for him to cut through and be such a massive name all around the world. I know he's, you've talked about his statistics and we're going to talk about his his, his special performances in World Cups, but um, it must have been the combination of his talent and his persona and character in his Ragged Richard Riches story that made him a household name at a time when there weren't too many household names.
2: As, as promised, plenty of Pelé uh, chat to come throughout the show. We'll leave the final closing remarks with Jonathan Wilson from The Guardian uh, this week. A bit of terminology uh, has emerged, Derek, which I think fitting now that Messi uh, is a, a World Cup winner. There is no doubt uh, in Wilson's mind, at least, that Pelé, Maradona and Messi form uh, the game's great trinity, which, yeah, does seem appropriate.
1: Yeah, it does. Obviously, all different generations, all South Americans, all number 10s of of various types as well. So that that continent, we've got a a lot to be grateful for uh, in that kind of continent. And when we have Ray on a little later, I think what we'll talk about is not just, you know, where does Pelé sit in the pantheon there of those players, but also just his overall legacy and and how important he will be. That It will be interesting to see how, you know, in the next generation or so, how Messi's legacy, you know, carries through post his playing career. I personally don't think that even though he is undoubtedly one of the most phenomenal phenomenal guys ever to to grace the the beautiful game. That in terms of what Pele did, in terms of raising the status of the game, raising the uh, the status of black players within the game, inspiring people who from impoverished situations around the world and showing them what was possible. Uh, I doubt anyone will 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 top that. But it's a great it's a great list to be on. That's for sure, Willem.
2: Ray Richards, not too far away. Before we get there, though, there are a few other football matters that we need to tick off and we'll start uh, in Australia. The desperate financial state of Melbourne victory has been revealed in a document to shareholders, which showed the club lost $6.7 million in 2021-22 prior to its deal with 777 partners. It also revealed the deal with the US private investment firm includes the right for them to buy up to 70% of the club. Pending shareholder approval, uh, but those major shareholders have indicated they will give that approval. Victory announced this deal, Michael, with 777 Partners in October, or 777 Partners, uh, and it was branded very much as a strategic investment, a nice, sharp little bit of business around sort of 10% of the club to turbocharge them going forward, but it now looks very much like it is genuine life support. Uh, the club's auditors had a, a fair bit to say as well this week, and a few finer little I'll throw to you, Michael, before coming back for a few finer details. What is your initial take? Because this, for me, was a surprise.
0: Yeah, it also coincided with the passing of Mario Bison, who, as we know, was a very big figure uh, behind the scenes in Melbourne Victory in a enormous um, financial contributor as well so look um, this is a warning signs for me of um, epic proportions you know this is the club with the the biggest brand and the biggest supporter base and obviously I think we need to read into the numbers the significance of um, the COVID year because we know Melbourne Victory's revenues are hugely uh, they hugely rely on match day revenues and they don't have that um, benefactor like a lot of clubs like Tony Sage at Perth Glory and um, the Sydney guys, for example, who are continually tipping in to sort of square the books, but um, yeah, this is a this is a big story, and Melbourne victory remaining in the news for all the wrong reasons. So we'll have to watch what happens here, and whether um, Anthony. Di Petro and Carolyn Carnegie, the, the leadership of that club can steer the way through this. Obviously, they didn't comment on the article. I know Vince Regario wrote it. They didn't comment uh, to him about it. So we all obviously probably need to give them the benefit of the doubt of what's going on. But it uh, seems pretty factual based on the information in the article and the information that's obviously got through to the the journalists uh, from a shareholder. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's worrying times for A-League generally. And uh, when we talk to Simon Hill, we might talk just more broadly about how everyone's feeling about uh, rebounding from the
2: latest uh, troubles that the A-League had. Yeah, Vince and Ben Schneider's there, who is the age's, I think, sort of uh, financial corruption lead journalist, which probably says a little bit that he was involved heavily on this piece. So as I said, those finer points uh, around the the deal with 777 partners, $8.7 million, uh, bought them 20% a 20% stake in the club, which was all known. But what was not known until uh, this week or the past couple of weeks was that the deal included an option to own 70% of the club within five years for a further $30 million and the right to walk away after four or five years for a repayment of $30 million with compound interest, uh, which does seem concerning. Yeah. Victory are, you know, notionally the biggest club and victory's issues are victory's issues. But you know, considering the clubs are meant to be running the competition, this again for me further erodes uh, any confidence that you know the clubs can successfully manage their own backyard and the league, and not just manage the league, Michael, but put it into a position where it can actually grow and thrive.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, people like us, uh, we've been covering the A League since the word go, and in particular, in great detail, the demerger merger or the what they call the unbundling, um, the A League A League clubs and their leadership through that time through. It was almost like a civil war. They threw so much mud at the Federation uh, and were critical of the way the Federation was running the A-League that all of a sudden the spotlight is on the APL leadership and their capacity to make this work. There is no greater test for every A-League owner, president, CEO, the APL's chairman, its board, and its senior executive. This is a leadership crisis, and now is the time that we will see the colour of their capacity and whether you know they can steer the, steer the uh, the organisation the organisation and the league through its uh, most troubled times right here and
2: now well said Cristiano Ronaldo has joined Saudi club Al Nasser on a deal running until 2025, which Derek, if completed, will be the most expensive in the history of the sport. It's said to be worth 200 million euros per year, including commercial agreements, and you'd think there'd be a swag of those. That equates to roughly 313 million Australian. Uh, there's been, I guess you could say, a touch of xenophobia and cynicism from maybe the you know the press abroad, but we're pretty sort of au fait with Al Nasser and Saudi football, given they're part of our orbit uh, in Asia, based in Riyadh in the capital, formed in 1955, nine times Saudi champions. Is this in any way a surprise or, you know, do you find this interesting in any way, Derek, or is this just a sort of a natural part of mega, I mean, say what you like about him as a bloke and how he's acted in the last couple of years. He is a, a mega star in terms of global sport. And yeah, I think this is just a natural progression, really. I'm not surprised in the slightest.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know if I would agree with the word progression. He's not Okay. Progressing anything apart from his bank account, but um, I but I, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, it feels a little undignified. I think I, I will I will take the opposite ground, which is you know that if we, I think we all worry about sports sports washing on this show and and the roles of of of, of clubs and nation states and the personnel within that. So Ronaldo has you know taking the decision that you know in lieu of any other you know, enticing European offers of which it doesn't sound like there were many. I'm sure he would have been scouring all over to try and get himself a seat at the Champions League club. We know that he has unfinished business in that tournament. We know that he wants to overtake um, Messi's record in that in that tournament and that he's a keen you know he he is worried about legacy. There's no one more worried about legacy than Cristiano, and it wouldn't have been lost lost on him as he was sat in Portugal or wherever he was watching the World Cup final that Messi had leapfrogged him in the in the final round of the, of that battle. And at thirty, a thirty, 30 odd, thirty seven, thirty eight, whatever he is, he probably won't be able to emulate him there. So, yeah, look, um, you know it, he's he's going there for financial reasons. He's not going there to improve his game. He's not going there to win major trophies. He's going there to get a whacking great payday. And yeah, I suppose it's easy for me to be critical about it. I'm not in that position. And $313 million sounds like an awful lot of money. I wonder what he'll do with it. With
2: Michael, did you uh, did you want to jump on here or should we have a quick look at Celtic and Rangers in the old firm derby, which has made headlines overnight?
0: I oh, know. Look, um, I'd probably take a different view to Derek. Um, it's a free world out there. and. I don't necessarily as have a stronger opinion about sports washing. Whenever sports washing comes up, I often say, "So you know, David Gold and David O'Sullivan, who or David Sullivan, who have owned West Ham, who have owned Premier League clubs since the early two thousand, made all their money from pornography. So are they sports washing, Derek?
1: The washing something? <laughs> I don't know what they're watching. Um, I don't know if
0: yeah. all the owners, all the owners of Premier League clubs who made their money out of. Um, um, gambling organisations, are they sports washing? So, look, I don't get hung up on that. It's it, it is a free market out there. There's a lot of people with a lot of money and, you know, he won't be the first player and the last player to go to a club like that for a huge amount of money. I'm more interested in Ronaldo's legacy continually being eroded by his very poor behaviour at Manchester United and his incredibly disappointing behaviour at the World Cup. If I was a Portugal fan, I'd be a bit shitty about the way he carried on um at his club and considering at the at the World Cup and considering um you know when they go, I was at the game where Portugal was rolled by Morocco and saw the way he left the stadium and you know for me they're the bigger issues for Cristiano Ronaldo as but as to where he plays his football.
2: And finally, Celtic have retained their nine-point lead atop the Scottish Premiership following a two-all draw with Rangers. Celtic took the lead at Ibrox in the fifth minute but were slowly overhauled by the home side who were, from go-to-o, probably... or not from go-to-o, but on the whole, the uh, the better side after their slow start. Ultimately, though, Kyogo Furuhashi levelled things on 88 minutes.
3: Here's Moy. Ryan Jack blocks it. Oh, and again, but will it fall here for Celtic? It will! It's key.
2: So after Dyson's opener, the gap was 12 points. After Ryan Kent's goal to make it 2-1, it was 6, where it all in the end ended where it began, 9 points. But we'll cover off on that a little bit later on in the week, I think, in stoppage time. Stick around. On the other side of the break, we will go down memory lane with Ray Richards.
3: Box to
4: Box for Chemist Warehouse.
0: Great savings every
4: day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices.
0: Changing the mood of food. And this
4: could be the most crucial goal of all. In
2: 1970, Pelé led Brazil to their third World Cup and established himself and his nation as the game's preeminent, most recognisable forces. Two years later, still just 31, He travelled with his club side Santos to the Sydney Sports Ground to meet Australia's Socceroos, who themselves were just two years away from stepping onto the world stage for the first time. It's a pleasure to welcome the man who was tasked with marking the king on that day, Socceroos royalty, Ray Richards. Ray, a very special welcome to box to box It sounds like you passed the test with flying colours on the day. Uh,
3: Yeah, a bit of a task, but um, I was given a task early in the week. I knew knew what was on, even irrespective of... Stories you may hear from Raleigh that when he told me in the dressing room, I went straight to the toilets and vomited. No, I didn't. He told me during the week I was marking Pelé and I had to get my my, uh, head around it and get myself in the right uh, frame of mind.
2: You've had a chat with Nick Campton and Sam Lewis for the ABC this week who have already told the story, really. They've done a fantastic uh, retelling of it. Um, 31,755 in attendance. Apparently, the stadium only held 6,000, so I'm not quite sure how they made that work. Uh, two all on the day. How have you felt this week? Have you had the chance to reflect on the fact that uh, Palo's passed? He meant so many, so much to so many, and you had your personal connection with him as well.
3: Uh yeah, it, I I I broke up quite honestly on a um, a 4BC uh, drive program in, in Brisbane, and I broke up because I think he he meant a, a great deal to a, a great number of people, millions and millions, uh, around the world, and you know it it gets to be a shame when you've got a leading newspaper like the Telegraph, they put him in the same category as as Neil Armstrong, he's, he's an icon like Neil Armstrong when, you know, Neil Armstrong travelled all those miles in a rocket with other people and he made one step. Pele's been dancing around the world for 20-odd years.
0: Ray, can you get, go back to 1970 for us? Because uh, just for the um, the younger listeners to our podcast, you know, there's no internet, uh, there's no, um, you know, satellite television. Uh, no mobile phones um, yet Pele was a massive massive name Um, can you just take us back to when you heard that Santos was coming and Pele was going to be part of the group did that news reverberate around Australia and um, what was his reputation at the time you said that when Rale said you were going to mark him you you took a while to get your head around it but can you just remember uh, the lead up to that game and just the aura that Palais at that stage of his career carried, just so our younger listeners can just understand how big it is. I mean, it was a much less connected world in terms of media, but he was he was such a mythical figure, wasn't he?
3: Well, he, he was, and uh, uh, unfortunately, even in those days, there was no coloured television. So even when we played in Germany in 1974, the colours of the shirts and that had to be organised so that there was a dark and a light colour. But uh, as far as Pele goes, I think he's been recognised, you know, around the world for, uh, well, for many, many years now. And go, you go back to 1966, even where he was kicked off the park in England in the World Cup. Um, everybody even then acknowledged him as, as, uh, as a leading figure, uh, not only in football. He, he was recognised throughout the world through world leaders and, uh, you know his influence on the world not not only through football but through every other facet of life was was critical and and he 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 could talk with leaders of governments and heads of states and uh, he was just like one of them.
0: He certainly was and 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 how did you rate your day at your day on the park playing against Pele? I mean when you walked off the field two two did you uh, pat yourselves on the back and think that was pretty good? And were you happy with your own performance? Uh,
3: well, it didn't really. I was looking more at the overall team performance, which we always did with, with the 74 boys. Um, you know, it was always a case of if one of us had a bad day, then the others were there to, to kind of fill in and pick up the, the shortfall. Um, and that's, that was the strength of the 74 boys. Um, and I, I didn't really reflect on my game uh, as against the overall team's performance in uh, in getting a great result. Quite honestly, two two against a team like Santos with the with the squad of players that they had at the time.
2: And Ray, shortly after the uh, the clash in Sydney, word filtered. Through through a German newspaper, I believe it was that Pele thought very highly of you of a uh, of a mustachioed individual named uh, in Australia called Richards. He had you up as uh, as one of the best he'd ever played against. How did that feel? Can you remember? I mean, that's such a such a huge moment, really. Do you have distinct memories of where you were when that news filtered through?
3: Well, it was enormous accolade. I've, I've got the actual paper cutting from the Die wacker which is the German newspaper, and. In there, Pele said that he had played against all the top players in the world, the likes of Bobby Moore and Beckham Bauer and and that. But his hardest game of his career was against the moustachioed individual in uh, in Australia, and I, it wasn't only an accolade for me; it was an accolade for Australian football. And I've had the opportunity of selling his shirt a number of times: uh, once into America, and once into a a German gentleman in Poland. But I have kept it here basically because I I thought it belonged to Australia's history and uh, I think it should have stayed here and I loaned it to the Sydney Cricket Ground Museum uh, only for a year, about three years ago, and I've left it there because of COVID and other uh, things. And I think uh, Ian Hedge rang me up the other day and asked me if, if they could put it out on during this uh, uh, Australia, the test match coming up tomorrow. And uh, I suggested to Steve uh, Small, the crickety, yesterday that maybe Pidge um, could get it out and maybe charge people. kiddies might want to get a photo with it and it'll add funds to the, to the pink test and uh, breast cancer for women. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to go ahead or not, but you know, the op- opportunity or the option is there, yeah.
1: Ray, a lot of people said that uh, Pele was ahead of his time when he arrived on the scene in 1958 as a raw 17-year-old, that it was almost like someone had come from a different planet, uh, such was the difference in his game. Could you discover what you could see, Have you know, what was different, in terms of what you encountered from the strikers or forwards that you had to uh, defend uh, more normally,
3: well, Pele, uh, all the things that the likes of Messi and Ronaldo and and all these players are doing now, Pele done all those years ago, and um, I, <laughs> it's hard to put to words. Uh, you know, even on the day, uh, you you take things just on, on face value. You've got to play them as they come to you. And my whole uh, theory on the day was that if Pally got the ball, I was dead and I, I just had to win the ball before he got it. And, and that was the only way I could see that I could nullify him. I never fouled him once all day uh, throughout the game. The only time I got pulled up was both of us went for a high ball at one stage and... Tony Boskovic, the referee, gave the the free kick to Pele, but uh, other than that, it was just a. It was my own mindset that I I just had to win the ball before Pele was able to get control of it, basically.
1: Uh, off the pitch, you obviously got a bit of a sense of him, uh, the man as well. Yeah, you picked him up and took him to a book signing. Uh, amongst other things, in your in your car with the Pele number plate, but the thing that comes across uh, more than anything about Pele wasn't just how great he was on the pitch, but it was just his kind of pers- personality, magnetism, and he never really lost his down to earthness, did he? Even because, even while being so famous at the time.
3: No, no, I agree. I agree. He was he was always grounded. Uh, he never let his uh, fame or fortune or or his ability to get the better of him. And, and he was always, and you see him in, in a lot of the videos and that he's always coming to the kids and cuddling the kids and talking to the kids. And that was his whole background. And I think that that's his grounding. Uh, unfortunately, you know, they compare Messi and they compare Maradona and you look at the different players and uh, Messi, I, I think is an unbelievable player. Uh, it has a, a different body structure to Pelé. He's got a, a very low uh, uh, centre of gravity uh, because he has a long body and short legs. And uh, But Pelé was just something else. He, he he never at any stage let his fame or fortune get the better of him. He was always grounded and he could sit here with us, for the four of us now, and just talk, just in general. It he, he wouldn't be all about him. He'll be you want to know about all of you
1: and what you've done and, and everything else. That's that's the man. That's that's the man. And, you know, you're you drawing comparisons to Messi, Ronaldo, Maradona. These are the, the names that have come up over the last week or so since the news filtered through. And we could probably have a few pints and debate this to, till the cows come home. But leaving that aside, would you say he is the single most important Important awesome player that's ever played the game, and in terms of like what he actually did for the profile of the game on a, on a global stage, and in what ways do you think we're going to miss him now?
3: Well, I, I think when you look at his background and how he had to, what he had to develop all those skills, uh, and what what's available now to the players, his is so much much more basic. He what he developed from what he had available is light years ahead of what players are doing now with the, the different things that's available to them. The 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 electronic uh, you know responses to heart and this that and the other. It's uh, he was doing it when none of this stuff was available to players and. You know, uh, he was brilliant on the ground. He was brilliant in the air. He was brilliant as a team player. He was brilliant as an ambassador. Whatever corner of the world you put him in, he would always handle the situation because he was—he was grounded. He was—he was just one of us.
0: And he conquered America, Ray. Um, well before you talk about someone being before their time, in 1975, at the age of 34. Um, New York Cosmos signed him ahead of Real Madrid, um, in particular. But what strikes me about that story was that um, the Brazilian president at the time, Ernesto Geisel, tried to actually block the signing of of uh, Pele to Cosmos. But the United States Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, what you know, what bigger name in world politics, and that got involved, got involved to woo the Brazilian president to allow him to come and. And uh, woo America for soccer and didn't he do a fabulous job? Did you follow his career in America? I think that is probably the most unbelievable sort of narrative around him going to New York Cosmos and just the popularity that Pelé developed in America Do you remember him going to America and thinking oh my god, that was an amazing decision at the time? Because it was well before its time
3: Yeah, it was an amazing decision because uh, America is not is not a a football country sort of thing, not our football anyway. Uh, And it was a a big surprise move. Obviously, there was big money involved. And uh, I think any Brazilian government in those days would have got brought down in an election if they had allowed uh, Pelé to get transferred overseas. Like, I I know there was an export embargo put on Pelé in his earlier days, purely because of that, that, any government allowed him to be transferred overseas would have been brought down at the next election. So, um, uh, you know, I I'd, I'd give full credit to the Americans to out, to be able to achieve that. But And as you say, it would only take someone like Kissinger to do the job, yeah.
2: Well, Ray, a true thrill to have you on the program. Thank you very much for your time and lovely to hear uh, and quite touching to hear that your memories of Pelé playing against him first time mean just as much to you today uh, as they did back then. So thank you very much for your time on box to box
3: Thanks for the
2: time, fellas, and thanks for what you're doing for football. 31 Cap Socceroo, Ray Richards there. Ray, thank you uh, to you and, as you call them, the 74 boys for what you did uh, for the game in Australia. Stick around. On the other side, Simon Hill. <gasps> Chemist Warehouse. Right now at Chemist Warehouse, get half price off the Nature's Own range. There's Nature's Own Super B Complex 75 tablets. Michael, you're a Super B Complex man.
0: <laughs> I am very complex man. Um... Yeah, Super B. Tell us more about Super B Complex,
2: Willam. They're just fourteen forty nine right now. Derek Nature's Own Complete Sleep Advance, sixty tablets for twenty two twenty four. How's the uh, advanced sleep coming for you?
1: Well, look, I've been doing a lot of sleeping given that it's the holidays. Um, so you know, I'm always interested in something that's going to help me sleep better, Willam.
2: Twenty two dollars, twenty four. I should have added there. And Nature's Own Glucosamine Sulfate with Chondroitin, three hundred and twenty tablets, just twenty nine ninety nine. Offer excludes exclusive bulk sizes. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day.
3: Box to box. Can you believe it?
4: For Chemist Warehouse.
3: Great savings every day.
4: And Hoyt's Herbs and
2: Spices.
0: Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all.
2: What's become clear through Palais' final months and the past week is that the impact he left on those he met, despite his godlike status, was that of a caring, humble man who understood what his time meant to people. Simon Hill is one of the thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people Palais met during his 82 years. So what better time to welcome Simon back to the program to recount that meeting? Simon, Happy New Year.
4: Happy New Year to you both. How are you?
2: Well, thank you. You've posted a photo of you and Palais at the 98 World Cup, where you interviewed him in a professional sense for the BBC. Uh, from what I can gather, take us inside that day and that that moment. What part of France were you in? Yeah, take us there.
4: Yeah, uh, it's a long time ago now. Uh, before I grey hair, you um, <laughs> uh, looked it rather
2: cheeky. I will say,
4: <laughs> it was in uh, it was in Paris, um, and it was the day before the World Cup final between Brazil and France. And Pele was doing his usual rounds because, of course, he was an ambassador for Mastercard, as you remember, for many years. Um, and I turned up on spec. Uh, Nobody else from the BBC who I was working for at the time thought it was worth going because they knew there was going to be an almighty scrum to try and get to him, but uh, I was determined because I'd never met him, um, so I went and waited for four hours. Um, I think he must have done, I don't know, 200 interviews. I've never seen so many TV cameras and uh, radio reporters and newspaper men all trying to get a couple of minutes with the great man and uh, eventually my time arrived and yeah i got my uh, i got my 10 minutes with him um, which was terrific and uh, at the end of it i asked him for a photograph. this was you know the days before mobile phones so you had to actually get out your <laughs> your physical old camera and um, asked him for a photo and his security guard sort of tapped on his watch and said no 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 time's up Time's up. You've got to move on because there are still probably another 20, 30 journalists waiting. Um, at which point, Pele said, "No, it's okay. It's fine." Um, which, look, I, I don't know. I never knew him properly. Obviously, I had ten minutes with him, but uh, you know that spoke volumes to me. That even after all that time, and he must have been tired because he'd done a lot of interviews, um, he still recognised that you know people wanted to to have that moment with him, which was wonderful. And I, I still have that uh, picture on my. Office wall at home. It's a great moment.
2: And there could be a, a bit of a tired debate, I suppose, to proper football fans. It doesn't really matter who was better of Pelé or Maradona or Messi or Ronaldo for that matter. But you've said a couple of times over the past week that you do have Pelé uh, as, your, as your true number one.
4: Yeah, I do. And look, it's no slight on the other two. Um, you know, Diego Maradona was probably the, the player of my era when I was growing up, and there's no doubt he was an incredible footballer. Um, and Messi the same and obviously he's just put the, you know the the crown and glory on top of his career by winning the world cup as well but for me pelé transcended the sport at a time when few athletes did and certainly even fewer black athletes did and in an era when the world was a much bigger place uh you know it was still in the days of black and white television when he first emerged and probably one of the reasons why he's become so iconic is that he made the transition from black and white into color. Uh, you know, particularly at the 1970 World Cup, um, which made it all the more vivid. Now, I, I don't remember that tournament; I was too young, um, and I only remember him. You know, playing, watching on TV, really at the very end of his career. But uh, I, I just think he he was a global icon in the days when not many sportsmen were. Probably uh, him and Muhammad Ali, who came a little bit after uh, Pelé, but they straddled the same era, um, had that status. And and the fact that he played most of his career in his native Brazil for Santos before that little spell with New York Cosmos at the end uh, underlines just uh, how how much he transcended the sport. You know, he didn't play for Barcelona or Real Madrid or Manchester United or Bayern Munich. He never made that transition to Europe. He was he was at home and and still everybody on the planet knew who he was and that was, you know, not only the power of the World Cup but also the power of Pelé and uh, that, that's why he's number one for me and the fact that he won three World Cups is just incredible.
0: They're beautiful words, Simon, because um, because he played in a different era to Maradona, Uh, A lot of people of um, the millennials in particular don't have the sort of video footage to the extent that we do of Maradona. So it is um, important to realise the significance of his impact at a time, like you said, when the world was not as connected as it is right now. But let's segue back to Australian football and the A-League for men uh, in particular and just the ongoing fallout associated with um, the Melbourne Derby recent one. Simon, as you know, I've been overseas, so I've sort of been watching all of this from a long way away. And, um, you know, like all good football people like you, Wynn Willem, our our hearts are hurting over this issue. But I I thought I'd ask one question off the top. Now that sort of things have transpired, um, do you think it all could have been avoided with better management of... um, the home end situation in in Melbourne in particular do you think this whole circumstance could have been avoided
4: with the home end you mean the the, the active supporters
0: yeah yeah the active supporters in in Melbourne in particular I'm talking about and just uh, on the day whether they put enough um, investment into yeah understanding that this could have been a volatile day
4: well that's certainly part of it um, it, it could possibly have been predicted, although certainly not to the extent that it turned out, um, that there might be some disruption given what had transpired, you know, the week before with the moving of the the grand finals or the selling of the three grand finals to Sydney over the next three years. Um, I I certainly question the timing of that announcement, to be honest, in the first place. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not the first time that that particular active supporter group had caused problems. But it's a difficult balance, isn't it? You know, we we want the atmosphere that the actives bring to the competition. And we've spent many years, you know, me included, bemoaning the fact that we have sort of killed off that atmosphere by trying to make it too safe, overzealous security, and uh, accusing them really of a lack of understanding of of football culture. Now, you know, it, it is a fine line between passionate support and crossing over that line into violence and disruption that brings, you know, those horrible images that we we saw a week or so back, and really, the, you know, the supporters do have to self-police to a large degree. You, you can say, well, there should have been more police there, there should have been more stewards or security, but at the end of the day, if a if a handful of idiots, and that's all it is, it's a handful. I know 150 seems a lot, but in a crowd of what was it, twenty thousand, it's it's a very small minority if they are hell bent on misbehaving, I don't really know what you do about that. Um, the issue for me is that these people are not wanted in football stadiums. As I understand it, a few of them are already serving bands, in which case they're clearly not effective. Um, so that certainly needs to be reviewed. With regards to the flares, Again, I don't know how you stop that if people are determined to bring them in, unless you're going to install full body scanners outside football stadiums. You know, these are pretty small things, as I understand. I've never actually held one. I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to buy them, although I'm told it's the boat shop, which is bizarre. Um, but, you know, you, you can disguise them in various parts of your body. And, you know, if, if the, the pat downs, which I presume they do as they enter the stadium, are not thorough enough, then. It's very difficult to stop them getting in the stadiums. Um, all we can do as football people is encourage the good supporters, which are ninety nine point nine percent, to keep a, a watchful eye on those who are there to make trouble. It, it's so depressing, Michael. Uh, you know, I've ne- I've never felt so despondent about the national league as i have done in in the wake of that incident because we just had been to a brilliant world cup all three of us and we were looking at you know possible spin off effects uh, for for the national league isn't it going to be great we uh, hopefully get more people to come along on the back of that where there's a lot of excitement about the national team and all of a sudden that's that's been killed stone dead and and why we keep doing this to ourselves as a sport i have just got no idea um, I'm out of answers as to you know what the solution is to be honest uh i can only hope that we can you know rebuild uh, uh the fan base who might have been put off by this understandably so there were terrible awful pictures that we saw in that derby root out the troublemakers and try and start again but you know every stereotype that we fought against for years was thrown back in our face in the space of 10 minutes and you know it, it, i got us to do several radio interviews in the wake of that uh, and i wasn't going to sit there and defend
0: those idiots yeah i, I agree I, I mean um yeah look you, you raise a good point all three of us were over over in uh, Qatar and there's a lot of a-league people on our prog- on our tour program as guests and mm-hmm. uh, staff and so forth and uh, there was a lot of discussion about the positiveness of the you know, the, the, the legacy of this World Cup campaign by the soccer roos and how it could be translated into the A League, and just some real genuine optimism about some of the players that emerged in the World Cup who were still playing in the A League. And I just share, I mean, I was just absolutely flattened. Um, like so I think you. we've all
4: been, Michael. And, yeah. you know, it, it's going to take a while to, to rebuild. Um, but that's all we can do, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, obviously it gave. The mainstream media, which, you know, a large chunk of are not in favour of our game, let's be brutally honest about it. It gave them a free kick and they've taken full advantage of it. And, you know, as I say, there's no way even people like me who've always been, you know, strong strong defenders of of, of football fan culture. I I can't defend that. Nobody can. Um, So... Yeah, it's it's going to be a long, slow road back. I think there are errors that were made along the way. Certainly, with you know that announcement of the grand finals was the catalyst for. I'm not saying it was excuse for it, but it was the catalyst for it. And perhaps we should have been more alert to to the possibility of trouble, particularly at the Melbourne Derby. Um, but yeah, if if people want to misbehave. Uh, it's very hard to stop them and uh, we just got to weed them out.
2: A final one, Simon, about the other major issue facing the victory at the moment. Uh, revealed this week that they'd lost $6.7 million across the bulk of the 2021-2022 financial year before signing with 777 Partners, the US uh, investment firm. Things seem really positive at the club under... The, what we could say is the new leadership that have been in place for a bit over 18 months now, John Didalitza, uh, Caroline Carnegie and Anthony Di Pietro, who's been there for a long time. Did you find this news as surprising as, as some?
4: Well, maybe the scale of the losses. Uh, I, th- I think most A-league clubs, probably all of them lose money, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> that's probably the same story the world over. It's very difficult to make a buck when you're you know, investing in sports, uh, particularly with it being such an emotional business and you know, you want to get in the best players and they cost money. Um, yeah, it's a concern because Victory are our biggest club and one of the most successful. And to see them in such dire financial straits it is a worry. You know, COVID has clearly played a big part in that. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it can't all be that. And, yeah, I mean, that that needs looking at quite seriously. And, you know, obviously that the league as a whole uh, has financial issues, even despite the unbundling. And, and again, COVID has, you know, been a big part, a big player in that. Um, but that's down to the Games leaders that, you know, they promised us the Sunlit Uplands when they took over. Um, okay, you know, they got a period of grace because of, of COVID. But, uh, you know, now we're, we're through that, you, you expect to see uh, some progress. And that includes the, the bottom line as well. And, you know, there is. It's funny. We've just been talking about this. There is. There is one way to get more money into the football clubs, and that's to get more bums on seats inside the stadium. Now, we've just taken a big hit with the problems in Melbourne that we've spoken about in that regard. But you know, that that is one of the longer term solutions. And and uh, I'd love to know their strategies to to improve bums on seats because it's it's so important.
0: And if we segue. Just onto the field, the, the football has been unbelievable. It's um, we've yeah, there's never, nothing
1: wrong with football. No, yeah. that,
0: the football has been fantastic. Some great games, some really um, amazing emerging narratives in some of the, the clubs. And we've got the you know the, the clubs that have been uh, at the pointy end of the, of the A League for many years, uh, sort of at the foot of the table at the moment. So we've got some new blood at the top of the table, which helps um, invigorate and build momentum in new supporter groups. So we've got a, a, a lot to like still but we have to get through this period of mourning Um, and uh, I agree with you Simon that the pressure and the test of the current APL leadership from board management right through to chairmen and CEOs of clubs has never been greater than right at this moment and we need them all to stand up, we really, really do.
4: You're right and... You know, it t- was ever thus that uh, there's, there's not too much wrong, actually, with the product on the field. Obviously, you get some poor games, the same as in every other league in the world. Um, but, you know, the league as a whole, uh, it's entertaining, it's competitive. We're, we're bringing through, you know, some good young players who just waved Garan off to, to England to play for Newcastle United. We've seen a whole clutch of players go to Scotland in the last offseason. You know, this is a good league. And it's evidenced by the fact that uh, clubs in Europe still want to come and take our players. So there's not a lot wrong with the product on the pitch. The issues, as ever, uh, is the disconnect of it with the supporter base and the media and the finances and the governance. And, you know, when are we going to get that right? I don't know. I've been here 20 years. And I'm waiting, and you, you've had to suffer it a lot longer. So, but we live in hope.
2: Simon, testing times for even the most passionate of people, but we'll get there. So thank you, as always, very generous with your time and your insight, and also your, uh, your memories of Pelo. So thank you very much.
4: Pleasure, guys,
2: all of us. Simon Hill there. Stick around on the other side of this Pelé's World Cup corner.
1: Wella well willa, everybody's going to buy Hoyt's
2: Spices. Summer's the time for great outdoor cooking. Stock up with Hoyt's herbs and spices and add flavour to your summer barbies. Derek, you're living a uh, rustic rural lifestyle at the moment. You've just spent all day putting up the chicken coop. It's got to be time to relax with the barbecue. Oh,
1: I've been having plenty of barbecues over the, uh, the holidays. Well, I and mean, have been with great waiters to keep the house cool as well by cooking outside. And yeah, I've always got my stack of Hoyt's herbs and spices at the ready to make it taste just fantastic.
2: Before you take your chicken outside to the barbecue, make sure while you're inside you marinate it with rosemary and garlic. Rub some Hoyts mixed spices onto pork medallions before cooking. Michael, that takes me back to my butcher days, the old pork medallions. And add flavour to the table with Hoyts olives and pickled vegetables. You'll be happy with Hoyts at Coles, Woolworths and all good independent supermarkets.
4: Box to Box.
0: Can you believe
4: For Chemist Warehouse.
0: Great savings
4: every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices.
0: Changing the mood of
2: food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back. It is time for World Cup Corner, Pele's World Cup Corner on this. Uh, specific week and I think we'll kick things off with some prose by Tim Vickery for ESPN uh, who described Pele's history with the World Cup as the classic drama in three acts Derek and it picked up in 1958 at the World Cup in Sweden just 17 years old uh, he had already a burgeoning reputation at that point and he was actually left out of the initial squad with a knee injury his teammates uh, stood up stuck fat so they definitely uh, wanted him there and remarkably Considering how much of an impact he had, he didn't actually roll out until their third group game against the USSR, when he laid on an assist for Vava. But from there, it was uh, yeah, very much the perfect opening act to the story.
1: Yeah. So yeah, 1958, and uh, yeah, he, he he apparently wasn't surprised getting into that squad. Uh, he was waiting at home, listening on the radio, and his name was announced, and and he kind of went to go and pack his bags, and uh, and off and off he went. And you know, if you if you're good enough, you're old enough. And plenty of players, whether they'd be Messi or whoever burst onto the scene at at, at that age. And yeah, by all accounts, he um, was already amazing in that tournament. I know they encountered Wales and I was listening to a player who played against him in that Welsh team. And they were apparently all just looking at each other after five minutes going, who on earth is this kid? And, you know, as Ed said at the top of the show, this was pre-social media, pre-YouTube. There were no compilations of Pele going around. In fact, even now, there's a poverty of of clips on his uh, on his play. But by all accounts, he took that 1958 tournament by storm, and that was his his the first of his of his uh, of his World Cup wins in the 50s.
2: Yeah, so he laid on an assist in that opening game, or his, or the third game, his first game, and then in the quarterfinal against Wales, he scored the game's only goal. But Michael, it was the semi final against France when he properly uh, went to town—a pair of assists and a hat trick in a five-two semi win over France. Yeah, absolutely. And if you watch the
0: uh, Moody Pele, the dramatised version of his life, he—I think he kicks an overhead goal in that one as well. So, <clears throat> look, um, yeah, he it, it just would have exploded, and obviously that led into the final where there was a lot of conjecture
2: about um, just whether he would get through unscathed and what happened in the final, Willem? Why don't you tell us? Well, he scored twice as they defeated the home side Sweden 5-2 and he came second in the golden boot at just uh, just 17. He scored six goals. Uh, His teammate Vava scored five, but to be fair, Just Fontaine, 13 in one World Cup. That's extraordinary.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, And um, obviously his name goes on as been one of the greatest names in football as well, or French football. But um, yeah, Pele, he, he walks away with the World Cup at uh, 17 years of age. I know um, our friend Mbappe is um, um, a little bit older on his first World Cup, but there is some parallels there, isn't there? Maybe not as significant um, in Mbappe's um, uh, World Cup Russia victory, but um, wow. Uh, Pelé, 17 years of age. No wonder they were talking about him, Derek. And you said pre, as we said off the top of the show, you know, no YouTube, no internet, no mobile phones, uh, just scratchy black and white televisions. But um, Pelé's name and heroics reverberated around the world.
2: Uh, They certainly did. Into the second act, which is, I don't know, traditionally where things start to go a little bit awry, the 1962 World Cup in Chile, still just 21, uh, scored what many consider his best World Cup goal against Mexico in the opener. was then uh, injured against Czechoslovakia in the second game. Missed the rest of the tournament. Garincha and Vava uh, were the heroes, scoring four apiece. So that was Brazil's second World Cup. And as we know, just the second team uh, to go back to back. And unfortunately, only players uh, who took part in the final... And also considering the fact that there were no subs. So they only gave out 11 medals, uh, given Pelé didn't play, didn't get one until 2007 when uh, FIFA retro- actively or retrospectively uh, handed all of those out. But Derek, things got ugly in 1966. He was uh, fit to start the tournament in England. Brazil played all three of their games at Goodison Park up in Liverpool. Uh, but in their opener, he was kicked off the park, basically, uh, by Bulgaria. Um, he scored a goal. He became the first at that point... Uh, to score in three consecutive World Cups. But, uh, yeah, it was kicked and missed their second game, a uh, loss to Hungary. So things were going all right.
1: Certainly. Well, it wasn't just Bulgaria. I mean, the, the group contained Portugal, uh, Hungary, uh, Brazil and Bulgaria. And, uh, you know, all, all of the teams, um, cynic, you know, quite cynically just kicked lumps out of him by by this time the Cat was well and truly out of the bag, and as you said, they did beat Bulgaria. Despite that, in front of 47,000 people, I might, I might, I might add. Um, but then Brazil's World Cup fell up, fell away from there. They lost three one to 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 Hungary. Hungary would have been a, still a bit of a superpower in football, I'm sure at, at that point. You know, the 50s was their era, but there would have been no mugs, I'm sure. But even still, Brazil probably would have favoured themselves to uh, to do that one, and then against uh, Portugal, another great name from from global football, Eusébio uh, scored two goals in in that game. And again, as you said, a Goodison Park in front of fifty eight thousand people this time, and it, it meant that um, Brazil uh, went out at the group stage on just with just the, the one win. So um, a lot of people conjecturing that that period between 1962 and 1966 probably peak Pele era in terms of his his, his age and uh, ability but um he was we were kind of robbed of of his uh presence at, at that tournament as uh, as Brazil were knocked out with him
2: and Michael the uh, the three act play reaches probably its lowest point as with no substitutes he's reduced against Portugal to limping around injured uh, and Brazil limping out of the tournament
0: Yep, absolutely. And um, I'm sure wherever he went, um, you know, once his reputation was franked with uh, all those successes that he was kicked and kicked and kicked. Um, Even the little video highlights of um, him being out in Australia uh, against Santos, some of our boys tried to land a couple on him as well. So, look, um, that goes with the territory, doesn't it? We've seen uh, the stars in the game during that era get kicked. But he played in an era where... Yeah, it was pretty ferocious stuff, wasn't it, Derek? I mean, um, he would have been a target for every nasty mean defender in the world, wouldn't he? He just they just would have tried to belt him whenever they could.
1: Oh, agricultural probably wouldn't quite do it do it justice. And certainly there was there was no no protection for 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 players back then. You could do pretty much what you liked and uh, you know, to get to get a yellow card you virtually had to, you know, side the per- side the person in half so whether it would have would have been trips pulls and then some of the nastier kind of reducer stuff then um i'm sure he i'm sure he received the work uh, the works and there are um uh some anecdotes of him leaving goodison park with a kind of coat hanging around off his shoulders hobbling being helped by a teammate out of the tunnel and, and out of the and out of the world cup so yeah as i said it's uh a shame, really. That you know, obviously, the nineteen sixty six World Cup is renowned for lots of other things, and you know, with England obviously going on to win, it was a uh, you know uh, one of the you know first times that we we saw uh, saw the colour uh, in in TV as well. But uh, for for Pele, it was pretty forgettable.
2: Yeah, it was that upset, Derek, that he vowed never to play at the World Cup again. And he held his word for two years, didn't play for Brazil, but did come back in mid-68 to score six goals in six qualifiers. It was a bit of a changing of the guard ahead of Mexico. No more Garincha, Vava, Gilmar or Milton Santos. But in came players at the time, young, but in time, we'd look back on them as the greatest. Uh, a front five under Mario Zagallo, who's still with us at 91. Uh, Jairzinho, Gerson, Tostau and Rivellino. Uh, Pele very much the uh, the senior guiding head amongst that front five. He scored the opener against Czechoslovakia. He forced Gordon Banks into the save of the century against England in a the game they eventually won, and then scored twice against Romania in a 3-2 win. So that was the group stage. We move to the knockouts and assist in their 4-2 win against Peru which set up their first meeting uh, against Uruguay since the 1950 final at the Maracanã, Michael, which was a traumatic event for all Brazilians, and uh, reports have gone around and stories go around that at nine years old, Pelé, uh, not so au fait with the game at the time, but he reportedly found his father crying uh, listening to the radio at the result and pledged to make amends.
0: Absolutely amazing, Willem, and didn't they get some revenge? And and Derek has the details of the game. Give it to us in all its colour, Derek.
1: Well, it was in uh, Guadalajara, somewhere the, the edge you might need to start familiarizing yourself with, with the uh, next World Cup as one of the locations. But as we, as Willem said, 3-1, uh, Brazil went out. They actually went uh, behind to Uruguay, uh, Kabila, uh, with the goal there. Uh, but then Brazil hit one back before half-time with uh, Cl- uh, Clodaldo. Uh, getting the goal, Jorginho then scored on 76 minutes and Rivellino on 89 minutes. So um, doing a great job there against, the, against their uh, their arch enemy, uh, Uruguay. And then Willem, it was on to the final against a very tasty-looking Italy side. There were no mugs.
2: No, they weren't. And I think any any football fan really can recall footage from this match Pelé's opener, a serious header. He was up early, and he just sort of yeah kept his strength through his hips and um, headed into the net. And then the yeah the, the joyous leap into the arms of uh, of Jairzinho, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Italy did equalise, but really in the second half it was a bit of a procession. Brazil four-one winners, and yeah from those deaths of sixty-six. Um, uh, much has been made, uh, spoken about really a lot this week that uh, seventy was the first World Cup to be broadcast in in colour. Michael and. Uh, that may have gone some way to entrenching, I guess, the, uh, the Brazil colour and the, and the cobalt shorts as well as one of football's most sort of romantic symbols.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to leave this little segment with a anecdote about off the park. Um, if you like American culture, we all know what Studio 54 is. So if you get a chance, uh, there was a fantastic documentary, Once in a Lifetime, the Extraordinary Story of New York Cosmos. Palais and Muhammad Ali were the only people to have their own Table at Studio Fifty Four, brother. That's how big he was in New York Cosmos. He used to just wander in, see the likes of Mick Jagger and Liza Minnelli. Just can imagine him with the big, uh, the big fluffy coat on. Derek just sw- swaying that Brazilian swagger into Studio Fifty Four. He would have been popular.
1: Oh, he was, and by all, by all accounts, um you know, his mission to America was successful. He's these missions don't always go to plan, uh, where, where players are brought in to, to try and grow a game. But in his three years there, he uh, raised attendances uh, significantly. They had to, I think, go into the New York Giants uh, uh, football stadium eventually, such was the clamour to see the great man. And he did uh, win a title there with, uh, with the Cosmos too. So, um, you know, apparently he was, uh, on a on a beach on a Caribbean island, when a guy from New York approached him and said, "Come and play in the come and play in the USA," and it took a little bit of coaxing apparently to to convince him. And we, we heard about the intervention from the Brazilian president and Kissinger uh, in the in the uh, earlier in the show, and I think that the line that the guy who eventually wrangled him in a, in a motel in Brussels, I seem to remember in Belgium, was, "Look, you can go to Real Madrid and win a title, or." You can come to the uh, cosmos and win a country, and apparently that is what got Pele over the line. That, that you know that, that it wasn't, it wasn't just about winning a title. It was, was this uh, this grander grander project, and he, he signed it on the back of a napkin or the equivalent of, and, and there he was. So it is a fantastic story.
0: Yes, and um, they say in America that after Pele, there wasn't anybody in the whole country. who didn't know know what soccer was. Lots and lots of kids started to play. Pelé made our game important in America, and the legacy is all of the Americans that are currently playing in Europe. They are the children of the disciples of Pelé. So that's what they say in America, um, who obviously had a very special relationship with the king.
2: And, Edge, we heard from Ray Richards earlier on how proud he is still to this day to have had that affinity and having gone head-to-head with, um, with Palais. So it would be remiss of us to not mention our old mate Dino uh, and how proud he is and how proud his family are that Terry uh, went up against Pele time and again when he was captain of Wales. And also, three times, yeah, three times. But then times, I guess the yeah. link is also there that um, Dino grew up when Terry was coaching uh, to some extent in the States during the uh, the North American Soccer League. That's right. So
0: um, yeah, very much so. The legacy of the North American Soccer League and Pele um, is is looms large in his story and a, a big part of it. So uh, rest in peace, the king, the great man Pele. We will miss his, we'll miss his smile. And uh, it was a beautiful tribute on social media when uh, the news came through that uh, he had passed. To see so many wonderful historic photos, and one thing was. Pretty uh, common in all those photos, Willem was just that beautiful smile that he had, and um, yeah, and uh, yeah. So he will be sadly missed. And as Derek said a little earlier, we've lost some uh, titans in the past year in relation to our game, but none bigger than Pele.
2: No, well said. That just about brings us to the end of the show, gents. Thank you, Derek, very much for your input.
1: No problem, gents,
2: and to you, Michael, as well. Thank you very much. Thank you as well to the listeners out there. Please subscribe to box to box box to box Stoppage Time and box to box Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at Box2BoxNTS and follow us on Twitter and you can drop us a like on Facebook as well. Please join us throughout the week uh, as our podcast drop. We've got stoppage time coming up for you uh, later in the week. Uh, and once again, next week, we will go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game. Vale or Ray.